The book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And if this is your first week uh, joining us of the new year, because I know we had some bad weather the last couple weekends, we have started going through another book of the Bible, 2 Corinthians. So we went through 1 Corinthians in uh, 2021, took a little break uh, for the Christmas season. Now we're in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. So I warned the 930 service, I'll warn you guys as well. This might be a service where you need some extra caffeine. So I'm not offended if you want to go grab, grab another cup of coffee. Because we're going to dive deep into uh, how the law of God is relevant and how it applies today. Because Paul's going to make reference to that. He's going to talk about the old covenant, the letter, letters of death and condemnation. And so what do we do with that? I mean, what, I mean, the, the simplistic answer is, well, we're under grace, not law. And the new cancels out the old. And while there's some truth in that, it's actually much deeper than that, that the law of God, all of God's word, the old covenant and new covenant, the old and new testament is God breathed. It's relevant. It's important. Now, yes, you have to take it within its right context. But it's very important. And so we're going to talk about, about some of that uh, today. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's writing, writing to the church at Corinth. Now keep in mind, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks and haven't been able to catch up and listen or watch the sermons, Paul is um, really defending himself, I guess, so to speak, because there are those trying to undermine his character to try to undermine his message. There's some saying, Paul's not reliable. This guy is just flip-flopping. He said one thing, he's doing another. And Paul's saying, no, that's not what's going on. I had a reason. I told you I was going to come to you again, and it didn't work out, and there was reasons for that. It wasn't that I'm untrustworthy. And so he's defending himself and letting the church know, look, it's, I, I'm committed, and and, 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 and I know these guys are trying to undermine my character, but that's simply not what's going on. So in 2 Corinthians 3, he says this. He talks about the fruit in his ministry is the letter of recommendation itself. Because what they had here, same thing that we do to a certain extent today. You want, you know, references from people. Maybe if you're applying for a job and they want to know, can you give us some references? Can you have people that know you, that can vouch for your character. Um, and so the same thing is, is true here. And, and in fact, we even see in other places where there would be letters of references. And, and in the context here, because if someone was maybe traveling to a church and going to be at a church and they'd, wanna, they, they, they'd want references from another church, basically saying like, this person's legit. It's not a false teacher. It's not someone who's trying to come as like a wolf in sheep's clothing um, to try to steal or to try to lead people astray. So that wouldn't be uncommon. And Paul's saying here in chapter 3, says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we need, as some others, epistles? That, just word, that word means a letter. Do we need a letter of commendation or of recommendation to you? Or those letters from you? He says, you are the epistle, the letter written in our hearts, known and read of all. What he's saying is, look, the fruit in my ministry of the lives that have been changed, 
that, let that speak for itself. I mean, do you really need some letter from someone, you know, stating uh, my, you know, my credentials? And uh, look, like you guys know me. And not just the church at Corinth, but other churches that Paul was at. Like, you see, like, God used them in a great way to change lives. And he says, so, for as much as you're manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in the table of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves, to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. So again, what he's pointing out is my letters of recommendation are the fruit in my ministry. The people, the changed lives. Now, Paul's not, not saying this in like an arrogant way. Because remember in 1 Corinthians when the, the church was having like this great division about who they were following? And some were saying, I'm following Paul. Some were saying, well, I'm following Apollos. Paul is quick to stop that. He says, I planted, right? Paul started that church in Corinth. And then Apollos did a lot of ministering to that church. Apollos came along and like watered, so to speak, and poured into them. And he's saying, look, who am I? Who is Apollos? We are simply God's servants. We're just laborers in God's harvest. In other words, he's saying, it's not really about me or Apollos. It's about God. So stop letting that divide you. So we see his humility there. So here, Paul's not trying to steal away like the glory of God. Paul's not, Paul's not trying to, to be arrogant here saying, look at me. He's simply pointing out, let the fruit in my ministry speak for itself. Instead of a letter of, of recommendation, my letter of recommendation is the people and the changed lives and, and the people you yourselves see here at Corinth. Let that speak for itself. So Paul's not doing this in an arrogant way, nor is Paul rationalizing that it's okay to have bad character because of the visible fruit and things. And, and we see a lot of that today, don't we? That's why this is really relevant to explain because sometimes people will see, well, and, and even like if maybe you've listened to some of the more popular podcasts within the evangelical world lately, and it seems like what's happening is you, you see like they're highlighting these people that were ministry leaders that from really a, 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 an earthly perspective, like they accomplished a lot. Like they gathered really big gatherings of people, built some massive buildings and saw a lot of that, that outward fruit. But then the thing is, they kind of took that as um, a license to do whatever they wanted, to treat people horribly, to step on people. And it was like, well, look at all the fruit, look at all the good. And, and, and we see that pragmatic approach is really, really dangerous. Because it matters. The character that we have in our heart for loving God and loving people and not just using people. Like that matters a great deal. Even if there's some outward visible signs of, of success. Right? So Paul's not doing that either. He's not approaching it in a pragmatic way of, hey, look at me. It's okay if I have poor character because look at all that God's doing in me. No, in fact, again, remember the last couple of weeks. 
He's defending his character and saying what you're, what, what's being presented to you is, is, is they're, they're twisting the context to try to make me look bad. And ultimately, it was because they were trying to undermine his message. And so Paul's saying, look, you want a letter of recommendation? Look at the fruit in my life. Look at the changed lives. And I, I ask us this, because this is part of, of one of our core values at Crosspoint is to make disciples. And I ask you this. Could we say like Paul, that the people that we're influencing, the people that we're around, that, that that's our letter of recommendation? Are we pouring into people? Are we investing in people? Are we making disciples? And you know what? That takes time. That takes effort. That takes spending time with people. And look, I know so many of, of, of us, we, so, some weeks, doesn't it seem like it's just, you're just barely struggling to get through the week? Like get everybody where they need to be on time and, and get everything done I need to get done. And sometimes it's like the furthest thing from our mind is like, am I really going to you know, sit down and spend a lot of time investing in people? And that can be a challenge. But it's important as a church that we understand the value and the importance of making disciples doesn't just happen when we gather on Sundays, though that is part of it. And that's an important thing to do. But it's the investment, the time that we pour into people. And so I ask you, who are the people that you're mentoring? Who are the people you're pouring into? And maybe you're thinking, man, I'm a brand new believer. I just maybe you just became a Christian in 2021, or maybe you haven't been saved for a very long time. And, and the reality is all of us need people pouring into us, no matter, no matter if we're newly saved or we've been a believer a long time, right? But also the question is, who are the people we're pouring into? Who are the people that we genuinely, like Paul, who's saying, look, that my epistle, my letter, it's written on, on the hearts. Why? Because Paul cared very much for these people. He invested in these people. He loved this church. And I ask us, are we, are we doing the same? Are we doing the same? And to do that, it's, it, it's got to be purposeful. We have to strategically, intentionally do that. Intentionally be, come alongside other believers to be there for them. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago about the importance and in that context was specifically when we're going through difficult times. But I would propose that it's during all times we need other believers speaking into our life and other people encouraging us and, 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 and challenging us sometimes. Paul's saying, look, my letter of recommendation is the hearts and lives of people. So he's talking about that and he says, look, and again, it's not in an arrogant way. He says, we're not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not, this isn't me. My sufficiency is of God. God is sufficient. God is enough. God is strengthening me. And now he says, look, the, uh, verse six, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the spirit be rather glorious 
For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, for by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. All right, did you get all that? Man, that's a, that's a lot, right? What in the world is he talking about here? Well, Paul is saying, look, he, he uses this phrase, this, this ministration of death. And then he talks about the letter, not the letter, but the spirit, the letter killeth. So the letter and this ministration of condemnation, the ministration of death, he's referring to the old covenant, the old Testament. And he's saying it's a, it's a letter of condemnation and death. So are we saying that the Old Testament is bad? No, absolutely not. He's pointing out that part of the purpose of God's law, the Old Testament, was that it showed us our shortcomings. So some of this isn't going to be new, especially if you were at Crosspoint when we went through verse by verse through the book of Romans and we went verse by verse through the book of Galatians. We talked about some of this stuff, but basically what he's saying is the law, part of what the law does is it shows us our shortcomings. In fact, Galatians says that the law is a teacher or a, a schoolmaster. In other words, it shows us, it shows us our shortcomings of how we've broken the law and that the law wasn't given for us to fulfill it because none of us can fulfill it. The law was given to us to show us our need of a savior that would come and for us who did come. Amen. And so when we look at the law, we look at the Old Testament. Sometimes as believers, we can take an oversimplistic approach and we can say things like, well, we're under grace, not law. In fact, Paul even said that. Paul said, we're under grace, not law. Or things like in here that, well, it's the spirit that gives life and the letter killeth. Or depending on who you think wrote the book of Hebrews, if, if it was Paul or maybe it was someone else, but where it talks about the old covenant or old law has become obsolete and then we have a new covenant, a new testament. And we can sometimes take this very simplistic approach and say, aha, the old is now done. The new has, has replaced the old and the Old Testament is of no relevance, no important, other than some nice, exciting stories to entertain the kids with in Sunday school and junior church. Other than that, there's really no relevance or importance. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake to view God's law in that way. That yes, those places where it talks about the new or the old being done away with, or even here where it says when Moses got that law and had that veil, and it was a, it was a fading glory. In other words, it wasn't going to last. It wasn't going to last in the sense that what we see in the new covenant, the new Testament is Christ fulfilling what was promised in the old Testament. It's not that it cancels it. It's that it was completed and that God's revelation and that God's, God's word to man, the New Testament, is a continuation of was, what was written in the Old Testament. But, but I guarantee you, if you haven't had this yet, you'll have this. But have you ever been talking with someone, and maybe it's someone who is antagonistic, or maybe it's someone that's just simply curious and they have a lot of questions. 
about Christianity. But have you ever had it brought up to you, or have you ever had maybe the accusation of, as a Christian, you just like to pick and choose in the Bible what you want to follow and what you don't want to follow, right? So, so here's an example. When we as Christians say that God's law is good, it's holy, it's right, we should follow it. And when we point to places even in like the Old Testament, whether it's the Ten Commandments or, 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 or things that we see of God's moral law, that it's good, we should uphold it, it's good for our society. And, and we say, yes, we affirm that, yes and amen. And then the question follows, well, why are you picking and choosing? How come, you, how come you follow God's law on these things that you agree with, but when it comes to what you eat for breakfast, you don't want to follow it? How come you wear mixed fabrics? How come you eat shellfish? Well, because the Old Testament forbids that too, right? And maybe you've experienced some of that. And if not, you will. And again, the oversimplified answer is, well... That's Old Testament. Well, again, yes, that is true, but there's more to it than that. And I think it's really, really dangerous to just dismiss everything in the Old Testament as, well, that's Old Testament. Is there a consistent way that we can look at Scripture, let all of Scripture speak, and see what applies to us today and what doesn't? And why are there some things that apply to us today? And why are there some things that we don't follow any longer that were commandments given in the Old Testament? Anybody uh, second guessing that you should have got that other cup of coffee? All right, if you need some, I'm not offended. All right, but let's look into this. This is important when we come to passages like this, because it, it seems like Paul's saying, oh, the Old Testament's bad. It's a letter of condemnation. And no, he's simply saying, pointing out, well, it, it's, it's a letter of, of death in showing us we fall short of God's glory. In fact, I would say this, that many times today, I think the reason why people don't see the good news in salvation and the glorious news of the cross and what Christ accomplished on the cross in his death and then, and then his burial and then his resurrection is because they don't see themselves as needing a savior. They don't take serious things like God's holiness and God's justice. They don't truly see themselves as abiding under the wrath of a holy and a righteous God. And so when it comes to salvation, it's more of like, I'll take it or leave it. It's more of like, well, if maybe, maybe one day I'll try the church thing and the Jesus thing. And, and for you, that works and I'm happy for you. But for me, it's irrelevant and I don't need it or desire it. Well, why do many people have that mentality? Because they don't see themselves as being under the wrath of God because God is holy and just. They don't see those things. And so they don't really see the relevance or significance of needing a savior because they think they're okay. Well, what does the law do? The law shows us we can't keep it. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath and condemnation because God is holy and righteous. So the law shows us our need of a savior. The law also, and this is interesting, the law also reveals that rebellion in the hearts of man, right? You ever see a sign that says, don't park here? Or you ever see a sign on a door, do not enter? And, and, and what's just in our nature? 
Well, we want to do what we had no thought and no desire to do it until somebody said not to do it. And we see that with our kids, right? Like they have no thought of doing something until they're told not to do it. And then they want to do it, right? And the law does that. It, it somehow just reveals that rebellion in the heart of man. And so what do we do then with the Old Testament? How do we view God's law? Because again, when we look at, at, at places in the scripture, like in, in 2 Timothy, a place that we quote often about all scripture is, is God-breathed. You know, at that time, primarily what they had was the Old Testament. And so again, I think it's a huge mistake to just say, well, all of that's done away with. So theologians way smarter than me for 2,000 years have wrestled with these things and they've tried to explain these things in a consistent way with scripture, right? Because we let all of scripture speak. And so maybe you'll find these things helpful. So first of all, what we see with God's law or the old covenant, the old Testament, you see something called the moral law. This is something that is unchanging. This is something that applies to all people and all times. God's moral law. You say, well, how do we know that? Are we just simply picking and choosing? No, because we take the scriptures in its rightful context. And when we see things like God's moral law, we see that God in the Old Testament, he judged all the nations, not just Israel. He judged all the nations by his moral law. That there were nations that God poured out his judgment on because of their murder, because of their rape, because of their sexual sins, because of them killing their own children. And we see that God's judgment was upon all the nations for breaking that moral law. So God's moral law doesn't change. Now again, we're okay with some of those things, right? Like how many of you would agree Thou shalt not kill. That's a good law. Amen. Right. I, I hope so. Some of you didn't raise your hands. I'm a little bit worried. God's moral law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Have you ever, have you ever been robbed? Have you ever had someone take something from you and you know that feeling? It's like, no, that's a good law. Right. I think we all would agree. We want to live in a society that upholds those laws. Don't kill. Don't steal. But then there's others that kind of ruffle our feathers. You know, well, don't commit adultery. You're only supposed to sleep with your spouse. Like, well, well, in our culture, that's just, well, that's just not, that's just not for us today, right? Well, anything that kind of ruffle, ruffles our feathers as a society, we want to just push that off to the side. Or not coveting what your neighbor has. Like, ooh, well, that one kind of hits even more close to home because we struggle with those things. It's a, but, but look, God's moral law is for all people, for all times. And again, I think we want to live in a society that upholds those things. So God's moral law. But then there's something called the ceremonial laws. And we see this. We see this in places like the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is probably, probably the number one reason why a lot of people stop reading their Bible through in a year, right? They start out really good and then it's Leviticus, like, whoa, Leviticus, all these laws, all these like washings and purifications 
and sacrifices and, and, and these things, you know what those are? They're ceremonial laws. And the book of Hebrews explains, look, these things were pictures. Why is it that Christians don't have to follow those ceremonial laws? Well, because those ceremonial laws were just shadows and types of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And those things were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't sacrifice animals. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is what has washed our sins away. Those things in the Old Testament, those ceremonial laws, those were the dress rehearsal. Those were just pictures. Those were just shadows of the Messiah who would come and who would fulfill those things. They point us to Jesus. Those things were fulfilled in Christ. So while we don't follow those, we do need to see the importance of those because there's still a moral truth that's presented in those, right? We need holiness. And that holiness comes through the holiness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness that is imputed or it's put on our account through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. We still need to be holy. We need God's holiness. There's, we need reconciliation. And those things are all found in Christ. So you have the moral law for all people of all time that's unchanging. And again, we know that from consistency and reading those scriptures in its context. And then you have the ceremonial laws. Well, we don't follow those, but we still need to see the important moral application we find in those things. They were fulfilled in Christ. But then the third one. This is probably the hardest one to navigate. And this is what's called the civil law. Now, these civil laws were given for the nation of Israel to govern. But I think we do it a great injustice and disservice to then dismiss those things. And think, well, they're no longer important or relevant because... We live in a specific society with a specific government, and so therefore those don't really apply. But here's something, and you probably know this, but did you know much of our laws that we have today in the Western world came, were founded upon, and they were derived from God's law? Things like that, I would, again, think that most of us would agree they're good laws that we need to have, and they came from God's law. So while, while we don't necessarily have to follow all of those civil laws that were specifically given to the nation of Israel on how to govern, we need to take the equity of those laws and see how they apply. And by the way, that's what, that's what Paul did. This is after Christ's death, after his burial, after his resurrection, right? So we're talking new covenant, Paul takes an Old Testament law, but he applies it and takes the equity of that law and applies it in the context where he's in. We see that one example is found in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he talks about the elders or the pastors, um, that those who, who rule well should be worthy of double honor. Basically, Paul's pointing out for like the churches that, hey, it's okay to pay the pastors that minister to you. And so what does is, what is he use as an example? An Old Testament law. And he's, he takes the equity of that law to make an application. And he says, you shouldn't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. 
And, and, and what would happen, he's saying, like, don't, don't put that muzzle on your animal when it's working for you. If it wants to eat, let it eat. Take care of it because it's working for you. It's, it's, it's serving you in this way. And so while it didn't apply to them probably at that time that they had oxen that they would put a muzzle on, he takes an, the equity of that law and applies. So we would see today, okay, here's an example of an Old Testament civil law that we would hopefully all find good and helpful, and that is that we should protect life. So in the Old Testament, he said that they were to build a parapet or like a, a railing around their rooftop. Well, most of us have slanted roofs, right? Like we don't go hang out on the, on the roof and have parties on the roofs of our houses. So it's not, hey, God's word says to build a railing around your roof. Like, no, but we take the equity of that. The reason that God told them to do that was to protect life, to, to, to not be careless. If somebody were to go on the roof and it's not, it, it, and, and they're not protected and they, they fall off, like, look, we want to protect and preserve life. So the equity of that is shovel the ice off your sidewalk, right? So nobody falls and gets hurt. The equity of that is if you have a swimming pool, build a fence around it. The equity of that law would be what we see in our, our building codes. Tom's probably cringing back there. We got a, a contractor. It's like, oh man, look at because some of those laws and codes are ridiculous. I get that, right? Some of them are very excessive. Like, well, where did well, where did this come from? But generally speaking, you know those building codes and those laws, they're they're there to protect and preserve life. They're there because we shouldn't be negligent. We shouldn't be careless where someone could get injured or someone could get killed. You know where we get those things from? from? From God's law. So again, I think it's a big mistake to just dismiss it. Oh, that was for Israel. Well, again, we're not proposing today, and, and, and this is a whole other aspect that I know you definitely don't want me to get into today. But even things like with those civic laws or even, even some of the moral laws. Why, why did it seem like there were like super harsh penalties for breaking those things? I mean, I don't know that we would propose that if someone breaks God's moral law and commits adultery, that, that, they, that our government should put them to death. I don't know that we would propose, maybe some parents at times you'd be tempted, but about stoning a rebellious child. And like we look at that, well... Well, there was a specific context, and I think there was specific reasons why there were super harsh penalties for those things was because the nation of Israel was going to be where the Messiah would come through. And it was vitally important that that nation would survive. And that's why there's harsh penalties for things that would destroy and break up the nation. Why there was harsh penalties for people following after other gods. And so when we when we say God's moral law is for all people of all time, we also need to take that in the context of the certain government in which we find ourselves. Again, we're not proposing that, that some of those harsh penalties, even though you, know, you do see some wisdom in some of that because the government is to be a terror to evildoers, amen? Otherwise, otherwise it's just this big free-for-all and, and evil people are getting by with hardly any consequences and what's going to happen? They're going to keep doing it. And other people are going to see and think, oh, I can commit that crime and I'll get away with it. 
But what I'm proposing is this. Look, when we look at these civil laws, we shouldn't just dismiss them. Look at the equity of those laws because they're good laws. I mean, it even gets specific about if your neighbor's animal gets loose and you see it, go get that animal and take it back to your neighbor. I mean, that's what being a good neighbor does. That's what love does. If that, you know, again, we probably, most of us don't have oxen for pets, but a lot of you guys have dogs. And so if you see your, your, your dog gets loose, don't you want a neighbor that's not going to immediately, you know, call the city, you know, they're, they're going to, oh, the dog's loose. Let me go help the neighbor. Again, I mean, if it's a vicious animal, that's another story. But it, the, the point is, we get those things from the law of God. Things like if you borrow something from your neighbor and it breaks when you have it, the neighborly thing to do is to replace it or fix it. Now, if you're, it even gets super specific, like, but if your neighbor's there with you and it happens, well, then you're not obligated to do it. The neighbor should know how it operates and how it works. And so if it breaks and your neighbor's with you, it's not on you. And so just these, these things, we look, okay, what's the equity of that law? Okay, if you're borrowing your neighbor's truck and it breaks down, while you're borrowing it, you know what the neighborly thing to do is? To fix it. Now, maybe it's a piece of junk and was going to die anyway. All right, your neighbor set you up for it. But the neighborly thing to do is we look at, okay, what, what is the equity of some of these laws? And again, so much of our Western world, the laws that we have that are in place, yeah, there's some that are ridiculous. And the more we stray away from the word of God, the more we're going to find that, that we're going to depart from that, those things. But much of what our laws as a society were founded on are from God's law. So do we just dismiss all of the Old Testament as irrelevant? No. Well, we see God's moral laws unchanging. The ceremonial laws were done away with because Christ fulfilled those things, right? That's why we don't do animal sacrifices. That's why we can wear mixed fabric. And we, we look at the moral law in that, though. We need holiness. We need the holiness of Christ and his righteousness, right? But we don't have to follow those ceremonial laws. The civic laws, while if we live in a government that's not that, that doesn't, you know, have some of those things as laws, are we forced to do those, those, follow, you know, those things to the letter? Well, no, but I think we can find great value by taking the equity of some of those laws because that's going to be good for society. Paul told Timothy that the law is good if you use it lawfully or if you use it in a right way. And again, as I pointed out, the law was given, the law was given to show us of our shortcomings. The law was also given to show that rebellion in the heart of man. And again, I think all of us want to live in a society where we're going to have a government that's going to punish evildoers. And some people say, well, we, we, you can't and shouldn't legislate morality. Now, I get the point behind that, and I don't completely disagree that instead of just forcing someone to do something, it should be out of a heart that wants to change, right? But the reality is this. It's not a matter of if morality can and should be legislated. It's whose morality will be legislated. And as God's people, we should have a desire that we have laws that are going to be life-giving. 
And you see this today where it's, it's as Pastor Jeff Durbin put it. He said it's either God's law or it's chaos. Because it's either God's law or it's man's law. It's either God's law and we follow that or we let these crazy tyrants make up these ridiculous laws and then try to enforce and enslave people to follow them. So, well, that's very political. No, again, I think we would all agree that we want to be in a society that uplifts God's law, not that ignores God's law. So how do we wrestle with these things? Again, I know the easy answer is, well, we're under grace, not law. And while there is truth to that, amen? Like, yes, we have the spirit of God that changes hearts, that the law of God is written in our hearts by the, the spirit of God changing us. I think that we do the word of God a great disservice by just ignoring, oh, it's Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us. No, we look at it in a consist, with a consistency. There's the moral law that's unchanging. There is the ceremonial laws that were fulfilled in Christ. But then you have like these civic laws that yes, they were given specifically to the nation of Israel, but that we can find great value by taking the equity of those laws. So this was, yes, a bit of a rabbit trail, but an intentional one, because when we come to places like this, I think there's so much confusion. There's so much confusion when we see things like, oh, the Old Testament, it's administration of death. It's like, oh, it's bad. Well, no, he says it's glorious. It's glorious because the law of God points out the fact we need a savior. We can't fulfill it, but yet Jesus Christ has fulfilled that. So Paul's saying, look, what was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. That, yes, the New Testament and the New Covenant is so much greater in the fact that we see that Christ fulfilled his promises. He fulfilled the things he said that he would. So verse 12, he says, seeing that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. In other words, we have boldness in this. We can have boldness. Because Christ has fulfilled these things. He says, look, as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. He says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So what we see that for the most part, the Jews, when they read the Old Testament, many of them don't see Christ in there. Why? Because there's a veil over them. And the truth is, again, many think this is specifically speaking to the Jewish people about that veil. But the reality is for every person, before we know the Lord, we're blinded. There's this veil that's over us and we don't see the truth. But when we turn to the Lord, when the Spirit of God changes us, what happens? That veil is removed and we see God for who he is. And we see God's law for the value and the importance of it. So that there's a veil that's over their eyes. Uh, I think a, a very present day example of this is... A couple years ago now, 
uh, Ben Shapiro was interviewing an apologist, William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a leading apologist and just does tremendous work. His theology needs a little work, but, but as far as, you know, defending the truth of like the resurrection and as far as, def- you know, his, his arguments about um, the, uh, the universe and, the, and, and, and how that, look, this, this, th- there's a designer behind all this. William Lane Craig just obliterates pretty much anybody that he debates. So Craig is such a great debater that, that people... Point, his, his critics point to one debate. It's the one debate out of like, I don't know how many hundreds he's done, that like, it might have been somewhat neutral. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's debatable whether he won the debate or not. Um, again, that should tell us something. When the only one that the, the skeptics and critics out of hundreds of debates, there's only one that they even want to talk about and discuss, like, that's pretty good, right? Like, I mean, he knows his stuff. He's a brilliant man. And he has done just tremendous work on, on presenting the evidences of the resurrection of Christ. That's kind of one of the things in his arsenal of, of, his, um, of his evidences that he'll point out. And in, in defending the faith of Christianity. Well, so, so Shapiro's interviewing William Lane Craig on, on his show. And great, great interview. And just, uh, truly enjoyed it. And while for Ben Shapiro, I mean, I think that, you know, we can appreciate a lot of good and a lot of things that he says. Sh- ben Shapiro is a Jew and, and doesn't believe that Jesus is, is the Messiah. And what I found just, just so amazing is this. That when William Lane Craig was going through some of these evidences and pointing out some of these things about the resurrection, Ben Shapiro's response was, you know, I just find all of that uninteresting. It's like, wow, Ben, why? Why do you find that uninteresting? What do you mean you find it uninteresting? And, and I think a very important truth, again, when it comes to not just the Jews, but when it comes to any unbeliever, that when they are blinded and they have that veil on, that they're not going to see their need of a Savior. They're not going to see the relevance of God's law. But he says, look, when they turn to Christ, that veil is going to be lifted. So am I saying, don't be passionate about sharing the gospel? No. Am I saying, don't, don't you know, have some good answers to the questions that people have? No, absolutely. We should be ready with those answers the best that we can to be able to, to, to show the importance of Christ and to be able to even defend our faith in certain contexts when, when it's being questioned. Like, yes, we should do all of those things, but know this, that we can't lift that veil off of someone's eyes. We can't give someone that desire to come to faith in Christ. Look, that's a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And when that person turns to Christ, he says that veil is going to be lifted. He's saying, nevertheless, when she'll turn to the Lord, that veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is the liberty. Because before we know the Lord, we are in bondage to sin. The sin that, that we think we have control over, the reality is that sin controls us. We are in bondage. We are enslaved by that sin. But when we turn to the Lord, when we trust the Lord, when that veil, those blinders are taken off, it says the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. 
there's liberty. There's freedom. And man, I found that. I have found that so true. Not only in my life when I came to know the Lord, but I see that with people. There's times when I'm maybe preaching or, or sharing the gospel with someone and it's just like there is zero interest. Zero interest. I mean like just the, either the deer in the headlights look or, or just, hey man, I'm tuning this out. And, and, but then God works in the heart. And all of a sudden, God starts changing the heart. And then all of a sudden, they're coming to me with questions. And all of a sudden now it's like, well, what's the difference? What happens? Well, when that veil is lifted, all of a sudden now there's that desire. The spirit of God changes us. When we turn to the Lord and we know the Lord, we trust the Lord. That veil is taken away and we have freedom in Christ. It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. And when we're beholding Christ, it says we are changed into that same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That what happens when we know the Lord, when we're saved, we trust the Lord and we're beholding Him. We're spending time with Him. We're growing in our faith. What happens? We're transformed. We're changed. That's what the Holy Spirit of God does in our life. So he's saying, look, the new covenant, the new Testament, it's a much more glorious. He's saying, look, because now the spirit of God will indwell a heart. And it's not just following these commandments written on stone. The Holy Spirit of God changes us from the inside out. And we have new desires and we have freedom. We have liberty in Christ, not freedom and liberty to sin, not freedom and liberty to do whatever we want but freedom and liberty to follow Christ. Freedom and liberty from sin, not freedom and liberty to sin. And what a beautiful, beautiful chapter and beautiful, beautiful picture of what happens when we come to know the Lord. So Paul starts out the chapter saying, look, you're my letter of recommendation. You are that epistle and, and it's written not with ink, it's, but it, it's written on your hearts. And he points out we are new, we are ministers of this new covenant, the New Testament. And again, not saying the old's irrelevant, but showing Christ fulfilled it. And now, as believers, the Spirit of God changes our heart and changes our life, gives us new desires, and we're changed by the Spirit of God. Have you experienced that change? Maybe you're here today and Honestly, and again, I don't mean this in a condescending way at all. And I know that, man, we dove into some pretty deep stuff in the, in the Old Testament and the relevance of it. And to be honest, you know, probably not the most exciting thing to talk about and study, but it's very important. So I'm not apologizing for it. We need to, we need to study it and, and understand and have at least some kind of an understanding of it. But, but I ask you this, like if, if you're here, maybe you don't know the Lord and honestly... You know, yeah, there's some curiosity, but I mean, you feel like, man, that veil is on. Well, turn to Christ. Keep asking questions. And you know what you're going to find? That God's going to work in your heart. That God's not afraid of your questions. That the more questions you have, the more it just shows God is moving and working. Maybe you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior. And, and today, it's the day to, to put your faith in him, to call upon him. 
Maybe you're here, you're a believer, you're a follower of Christ. And, and to be honest, hopefully just some of this conversation has maybe sparked some interest in like, hey, we do need to, to study the word of God more. We need to see the relevance of it. Now, there are some crazy cults. One is the Hebrew Roots Movement. And yes, it is very cult-like that they'll, they'll try to put you back under the bondage of the law and say, if you're not really a believer, unless you're following all of that Old Testament law, there's some really dangerous cults that are out there. And, and, and we need to be aware of that. And that is not what I'm proposing today. However, what I am proposing is that all of God's word is relevant. It's important. And just because something is a law in the Old Testament that we may not be under necessarily because it's a ceremonial or even a civic law at that time, it's important that we see that moral application and we see the equity in that and that we want to live in a society that uplifts God's law because it's either God's law or it's man's law. It's God's law or it's chaos. And I believe so much of the blessing of God, even on us as a nation, because we have honored God's law. We followed God's law and we're seeing a departure from that. And yet as believers, I'm not saying that we want to come to church and, you know, feel like we're at a political rally. I'm not saying that at all. Right. But I am saying we need to see that, like, that our involvement in our society and that God's law in our society is absolutely important and it's absolutely relevant to us today. Let's pray.